I don't know why I brought this up here. Don't need this. I think I'll just set it down. All right, so we are going to be in our last message for the Advent uh, series uh, that we've just called Christmas. And I don't know about you, but uh, this week has been a little bit uh, gloomier than, than normal. And uh, even the weather, you know, it's uh, a lot of rain this, this week. It's been record, record setting in a lot of ways. I think Friday um, was the rainiest day in, in about a decade. Um, and, and actually, they have like a, a gloomy index. I don't know if you knew that. Um, and Friday was the gloomiest day in, in 20 years in the Seattle area. Uh, they measure it by the amount of sunlight and, and jewels that, that our city gets. Uh, in addition, yesterday was the shortest day of the year. So when you combine both the shortest day of the year or close to it with one of the rainiest days of the year, you get gloomy. And I, I would love to this morning preach uh, a happy-go-lucky message, say, jingle bells, praise the Lord, glory to God, hallelujah, baby Jesus loves you, Merry Christmas, turn that frown upside down, but um, sometimes it's not that way. Sometimes Christmas time is a gloomy time, and, and it's not always a wonderful season. Why does this gloom exist? And, and does Christmas actually have something to say about the gloom that we experience? And my assertion this morning is yes, it does. The, the title of my message this morning is because of Christmas, gloom is doomed. Because of Christmas, gloom is doomed. And I use the word doom for a couple of reasons. Number one, it rhymes with gloom. <laughs> Number two, it has this idea that there's a marked end despite the, the remaining presence in the meantime. You understand what I mean? Like sometimes people will say something like, those plans are doomed to fail, right? They haven't failed yet, but they're going to. And so when I say that because of Christmas, gloom is doomed, I'm acknowledging that there is a continuing gloom, but because of Christmas, because of Jesus, it will come to an end. Because of Christmas, gloom is doomed, and what I'd like to do this morning is unpack that in three points. The first point is gloom exists because of brokenness and pride. Gloom exists because of brokenness and pride. Number two, God promises that gloom is doomed. And number three, Christmas is the assurance and the means of God's promise. Christmas is the assurance and the means of God's promise. Those are the three points. Point number one, gloom exists because of the brokenness of pride. And I'm going to be in Isaiah for most of our time. And we're going to start in chapter 8 and verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? 
to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. What is gloom? In verse 22, it says, the gloom of anguish. We're talking about gloom. We're not, I'm not talking about just mere sadness. I'm talking about something that's a little more complex. And it says the gloom of anguish. That word anguish, it's not, it's not anger. It might have some bits of anger, but it's, it's more like mental distress. The gloom of anguish, this mental distress. The, 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 the Latin root word from anguish means a, a tight place. If you can imagine your mind in a tight place, mentally distressed, heavy, a weight on you, it's not comfortable, it's painful, that's the type of gloom I'm talking about. Your mind's not at ease. It's not at peace. And gloom is a consequence. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying God's coming judgment against his own people because they have rebelled against him. And if you read up to this point, a similar pattern emerges where you see Israel's pride being called out by the prophet. In chapter 2, verse 11 We read, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. This was Israel's sin. They were proud. And in the midst of this pride, uh, what's exhibited is this self-reliance, this idea that, that I can control my life, I can fix my problems, I can make myself who I want to be apart from God. That's the essence of their sin. They don't go to God, they consult themselves. In verse 19, it says, when they, uh, <clears throat> when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Of the living? And it's this picture of foolishness that we see. They don't inquire of the living God. They're trying to reach out to people who've already died to give them instruction about the current life. And God says that's foolish. And then Isaiah says this in a poetic way. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. In other words, they they don't see the light of day. It's kind of like this. I've used a bit of this example before. Imagine that I give you a a, a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. It's broken into pieces. And I tell you to go into a dark room of is no light and to put that puzzle together. Now, there's two problems you have. Number one, you can't see the pieces. You, don't, you can feel the shape. You don't know what they look like. 
And the second problem, perhaps even worse, is you don't see the whole picture. You don't know what wholeness looks like. And so you can sit in the darkness with all of the pieces and try to put them together, and it may feel like it's fitting correctly. And you might deceive yourself into thinking that I've completed the puzzle, and when you turn on the light, that picture will be all sorts of messed up. And that's the picture of a people who's trying to fix themselves apart from the light of God. God is the only one who can communicate what that whole picture looks like. God is the only one who has the light to show us who we even really are. We don't know who we are apart from God. God says, if you do not speak this word, you do not have the dawn of light. You, you do not know. You cannot see, and therefore you cannot Fix yourself. Even in the dark, if we're honest with ourselves, we feel our so-called masterpiece. We feel the gaps. We feel the brokenness. We know that something is not right. And this causes gloom. It's frustrating. It's anguish. But the good news is God does not leave us with that picture of gloom. He promises brighter days ahead. Let me continue reading chapter 9, verse 1. This is the second point. God promises that our gloom is doomed. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. We have a promise from God. I want to light the candle now in hope of his promise. These candles represent our hope the journey that God, um, the, the, the hope that God is bringing about and ultimately giving us Christ. And let me look at this second point now. God promises that our gloom is doomed. First, Isaiah begins to speak uh, in the past tense of what he's already predicted. Okay, so Isaiah is up to this point prophesying judgment on Israel. He's saying they will enter this period of gloom. And now he's saying that those who were in gloom uh, will no longer be in anguish. Verse 1, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. 
So he's already prophesying not just gloom, but he's prophesying an end to it. And, and he describes that end as being light that comes in. These brighter days, there's no more darkness but light. <coughs> Before the problem was they don't have dawn, and now they get this new morning. And I don't know about you, if you've ever um, gone to sleep like distressed and, and upset and, and maybe angry or in anguish, and, but you wake up in the morning and, and maybe that's not gone, but that light that you see of day gives you a little bit more hope. Or you go out on a walk in the morning, you feel the newness. You feel like God is saying that, you know what, it's not, your life's not over. There's hope. And, and that's the hope. The, the picture of this light is a picture of hope that we have from God. He's giving us a new morning that those who were in darkness are no longer in darkness. They have light. In addition, we see that God says, not only am I giving you light, I'm giving you joy. He says, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. The, the way that, that God pictures joy is like a harvest, which to me is beautiful, because I think we can relate. I know we're not, most of us probably aren't farmers, Stephanie and I, a few years ago, we were getting tired of, of paying $5 for, for two sage leaves. And we said, you know what? Maybe we can plant some. And so we went and we got some basil and we got some sage and we got some cilantro. The cilantro was eaten by the bunnies. The basil didn't work, but the sage sprouted. And it started off as a little plant, and it grew into this, almost like this big bush. And, and every time I would walk back on the way from the bus, I would smile and look at the sage. And I remember the first time we had dinner with crispy sage layered on top of the food. It tasted better. That's the type of joy that he's talking about, the fruit of your labor. Stephanie and I are are having produce of another kind coming soon. <laughs> the joy of a child. And this idea, especially now that I've seen you know, uh, how much work we're, we have to go through to produce this child, and by we, I mean Stephanie, uh, we're, we're, we're going through this process, and, and it's worth it only if there's a baby at the end, right? Like, like, like if, we, if we get to the hospital a month from now, and out comes the spaghetti squash. It's going to be disappointing. I don't know, I'm, not, I'm not making that up. If you've read the pregnancy apps, we're 35 weeks in, uh, the baby's a spaghetti squash. I don't want a spaghetti squash. I want a baby. And it's a lot of work, and it's a lot of pain, it's a lot of heartache, and Stephanie will attest to you, but we look forward to our baby girl with joy. It's worth it. That's the idea. The joy as of the hardest harvest, the, the, the work of your, or the produce of your work. God says, I, I care about that. I care about fruitfulness. I care about joy. I want you to be fruitful. But something else needs to happen. Is I need to get rid of the conflict. I need to get rid of the brokenness. And this is why we see in verse 4, he says, um, Right after talking about the joy of the harvest, he says, for the yoke of his burden 
and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Um, in other words, for joy to be experienced in its fullness, we need peace. Don't we? Does that make sense? Like if, if, we're, if, if our lives are full of conflict, if our lives are full of brokenness, then it's hard to find joy. And that's why right after he talks about joy, he says, you know what? I'm going to break. I'm going to break the rod of the oppressor. I'm going to tear down injustice. I'm going to get rid of what burdens us. And he's talking in this specific case. We're talking about oppression. We're talking about war in verse 5. Right? That's an image of war, the, the tramping warrior, the garments rolled in blood. Right, we have uh, oppression and we have war, which are just systemic um, uh, manifestation of conflict because people, individual people have conflict. Right? There's countries at war because people are at war, and people are at war because we are at war with ourselves. That's the conflict I'm talking about. I'm not talking about multiple emotions. Like some people think, oh, I have conflicting emotions. Maybe. But people can be both angry and sad at the same time. People can be both joyful and fearful at the same time. We're about to have a baby. We're both joyful and fearful at the same time. They're not in conflict. They're just in, they coexist. The type of conflict I'm talking about is, I know that God wants me to do this, but I want to do this. I know I shouldn't do why, but that's exactly what I want to do. That's a conflict. That's the inner conflict that we have. And that's, that's called sin. Paul talks about it. The thing I want to do, that uh, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, that I do. Wretched body that I have. This is the conflict that God has come to end. This is the brokenness that God has come to solve. And until that's solved, ultimately, joy will be fleeting. And that's why God comes not just to say, hey, I'm just going to give you joy. But he says, I'm going to remove the thing that's a barrier to joy. He's going to break brokenness. How? How does God do this? How do we, how do we take God out of his word? This, this great promise. And the answer is this. This is the third point. Christmas is the assurance and the means of his promise to bring gloomy days to an end and to bring about lasting peace and joy. Christmas, the coming of Christ, is both the assurance and the means by which he upholds his promise, by which he keeps his promise to make the gloomy days end and to bring about lasting peace and joy. Let me unpack that. I'm going to read verse 6 and 7. <coughs> For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no 
end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. For us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. First off, this this is incredible to me. The, the, The problem the, the solution to our problem of gloom, of all humanity, the, the dawn of a new morning, the hope of all the world is found in a child. The, the rule of the whole entire world is going to be placed on the shoulders of a child. It's incredible that from global wars to school shootings to depression to oppression, injustice, all of the mess that we deal with in life is going to be solved through this child. And he's giving these incredible titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We are seeing described someone that is unlike anyone we've ever seen. Or known. Who is this child? Who is this child? Luke chapter 2, verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now imagine yourself in that room. By the way, scholars are not sure if it's a stable or or an actual room, just so you know. Uh, Interesting tidbit. But there was a manger, and it was a place for animals. And, And it wasn't clean. It wasn't the royal suite, even though royalty was in its midst. It was smelly, it was dirty. My wife would cringe. This is not the place where we're having our child. And in the midst is the Savior of the world. It's messy, it's grimy, and it's in this environment that God says, I'm going to enter into your gloom. I'm going to enter into your mess. I'm rolling up my sleeves. I'm not not giving you blessings at arm's length. I'm, I'm there with you in the stuff of it. This is the Savior that God gives us. Is this child special? Is this child special? Mary and Joseph knew he was special. The angels knew he was special. The wise men knew he was special. The 
King Herod knew he was special. He tried to kill all the babies to kill Jesus. The shepherds knew that Jesus was special. It's interesting in in Luke chapter uh, 2, verse 10 through 12, what we just read, it says, and this, the angel's talking to uh, the shepherds. He says, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Now, what's the sign? It's not swaddling cloths, right? That's not unusual. Sign is something that's unusual. Something that, like, oh, well, that's the one, right? There's lots of babies in swaddling cloths. But there's not lots of babies in swaddling cloths lying in the manger. That was what was unique. And so when the angels say, you're going you're to find a baby where you least expect it, that's what they're saying. And so the shepherds go. They find a baby where they least expect it, and they praise God. This is the Savior of the world. This child was special. Everyone in their day knew it. And now we sit 2,000 plus years later. Was Jesus special? 2.3 billion people in the world today claim to follow Jesus. More than any other religion that exists at this point. And if you understand how many people have believed in Jesus over the course of history, It's billions upon billions of people. Christmas is the most celebrated holiday in the world apart from New Year's Eve. It's the most celebrated religious holiday in the world. I found this quote from a church historian. Interesting. He says, This Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed, and Napoleon. Without science, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since and produced effects of which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. Is Jesus special? You bet he is. Jesus, the the Jesus influence is nothing short of remarkable. In fact, it's unparalleled. And to think that this promise 2,700 years ago from Isaiah, for unto us a child is born and the government will be upon his shoulders to come true in the virgin birth through Mary and now we get the benefit to see all of Jesus' influence all across the world, gives us assurance that God keeps his promises. And if he keeps his promises, he will keep all of his promises, including the ultimate doom of gloom. Yeah, we still have it now, but we have a Jesus who has risen. We have a Jesus who is at the right hand of God, and he will do what he says he will do. Christmas is the assurance, but it's also the means. And this is the last bit that I want to cover. Jesus is the means of how God keeps his promise. 
How does he do this? Jesus didn't just come to be a baby in a manger. Like, you understand that, right? <laughs> he grows up. Like, he, he has a purpose. He lives. He, he loves people. He follows the Father and obeys him perfectly. And, and the main thing that he came to do is to die. He came to die for our sins. He came to fix the brokenness that we have in our relationship with God. And second, the brokenness that we have in our relationship with others. What is this brokenness? It's the same thing that causes the gloom. It's the same sin of Israel. It's, it's rebellion and pride in that sin. And that's what God came to fix in Jesus. Let me give you an illustration of what this looks like, in, at least in my head. So a couple of months ago, or maybe a little bit less, uh, Stephanie and I and my dad and sister went out to eat dinner in Columbia City, and uh, we parked along the, along the way, walked to the store, we, or walked to the, the restaurant, and we came back to the car, and I noticed in the window was like a, a piece of paper, and my first thought was, oh no, I got a ticket. It's like, shoot, I got there before eight or whatever time, you know, you're supposed to still pay. I was like, oh no. So I grabbed the sheet, I look at it. And it says, uh, sorry, I hit your car, and it puts their name, and it has their email, um, at, or no, their number. And it hit my car, so I looked at my car, of course, and, and sure enough, there's a big dent in the front uh, driver's side um, bumper. I was like, oh, my goodness. Oh, wow, you, at least you left a note. And I was telling someone about that story, and he's like, like, you're so lucky. And it's like, because, because he left a note? It's like, well, he left the right kind of note. I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, a lot of people will write, I'm sorry, and just sign their first name. I was like, really? <laughs> he's like, yeah, for the optics of it. And I thought about it. He's like, oh, and he kind of explained to me, you know, you're out in public, you hit someone's car, other people see you, Right? So they're expecting you to do the right thing. And so I guess it's a thing where people will take out a note and say, I'm sorry, Billy, and put it on the car. And I thought, why bother? Why bother at that point? And so what's happening there, is that, is that a real apology? Why? Because there's damage that's been done. He's writing on a paper, I'm sorry, but he's not making an effort to fix the damage that he caused. Right? I want, the, the guy who actually wrote it ended up taking care of it. And so, but I still, it still cost me time and whatnot. But the, the point is, when something has been made wrong, it needs to be made right. And a mere apology doesn't do that. And this is this concept of justice. And it's built into us. It's built into our laws because it's built into God. It's, it's, it's justice. When people have been wronged, it needs to be made right. And mere words don't do that. And in God's economy, He's king of the world, He rules the universe. And when we sin, 
we cause damage to our relationship with God. And us merely saying we're sorry doesn't fix it because the damage has been done. And we don't have a checkbook large enough to pay for that damage. We don't have a box of good works large enough to pay for that damage. According to Romans 6.23, it says that the wages of sin is death. In other words, death is the only thing that can pay for the damage that we do to our relationship with God. And so that's the real problem that we're in. That's the real brokenness that we have between us and God because we have a debt that we cannot pay if we want to live. We can pay by dying, but if we want to live, there's a problem that needs to be solved. And this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus said, I have come to live perfectly before the Father so that I don't have to die for my own sins. So that when I die, my death can pay the debt that we cannot pay. His blood, he signs a check in blood, if you will, to pay for the debt, not just of me, not just of you, but all the sins of the world. Not just in past, not just in present, but every sin you will commit in the future if you will receive the gift of Jesus. And that's the point of Christmas, the main point. The, I know we're excited about our gifts under the tree, and, and, and I want you to be excited about that, but I want you to be more excited for the gift that we have in Jesus. He's given us his life, his blood, to pay for the sin that we cannot pay for so that we would have a relationship with God. We can go boldly before the throne of God, not in shame, not in guilt, but as a son, as a daughter, as his family, believing that he loves us because he's demonstrated it in sending his son to die for us. So we think about Advent. We think about Jesus coming. We think about not only his baby Jesus, but we think about it as King Jesus. And we look forward to King Jesus coming back and doing what he says he will do to remove the gloom and to doom it forever. And I, I just want to, the picture of Jesus in the manger, I think, is an illustration of where we're at in life. Life is messy. Life is dirty. It smells. It's uncomfortable. It's dark. It's damp. But in the midst, we have hope. We have God with us as we go through it. He can empathize with us. He knows where we're at, and he's saying one day this will all come to an end. And he gives us glimpses of that joy in the midst of the manger. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for sending your son. I thank you, Lord, that you're with us, even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of gloom, Lord, that you are a light to us, that you light our path before us, that you comfort us who are in affliction, Lord, that you convict us who are in sin, 
Lord, that you renew us in hope, Lord, that one day you will set all things new. And so, Father, we glorify your name. We lift up your name as the only solution to our problems of brokenness and pride. Lord, we don't have the answers. We don't have the solutions, Lord. We're in dark trying to piece together the broken pieces of our lives, and Lord, we need you to do that. And so, Father, would you help us to to trust in you, to remind us, Lord, that, that, that we need to be at your feet, that we need to receive you as our greatest gift. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.